Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, Jason Dempster and I are joined by Professor Andrew Koppelman. He recently released his book, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Fascinating episode. Andrew brings up some interesting, more, I guess you could say leftist type views than what I normally entertain here on the podcast, but he articulates them in a very, of course, educated way. He's a college professor. Very fascinating episode. Really appreciate Professor Koppelman for joining us today. If you're a fan of The Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by returning co-host or guest. I have Jason Dempster in studio with me. Jason, how are you today, sir? Doing great. Appreciate you coming on with me. Um, We are joined over the Louisville Combat Academy Roadcaster Line by Professor Andrew Koppelman. Professor Koppelman, how are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Great. Really appreciate you coming on. Of course, Professor Koppelman uh, recently released his book, Burning Down the House. Um, What is it? How Libertarian... How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Delusion and Greed. So very fascinating. I had a, a, a copy sent over to me. Jason, actually, you had even purchased a copy of it. And yeah. we both uh, read through much of the book and were very fascinated by the topic. I told you when we scheduled the episode, I, in the past, have voted for Libertarian candidates and lean very much so Libertarian. And, and what I find this book to be the most intriguing for is it's not a like a a, a glowing um, fanboy take on libertarian um, philosophy or thought. Of course, it's more so the other side. Correct, Professor Koppelman? 
Uh, it is a qualified endorsement of uh, libertarianism in its earliest forms. I like Friedrich Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom. Okay. And as we continue with the interview, Jason, of course, if you have anything that you would like to, Jason is my engineer, uh, the one, the brains behind the operation here. And so if you have any questions, you have anything uh, in particular that strikes yeah. you about the book, feel free to chime in, Jason. Okay. Yeah. I mean, do you want me to start now? Sure. Or? Let's hear what you got. What was your, your first takeaway from the book? Well, um, I mean, I guess you start uh, the book with the uh, anecdote about... Um, I guess there's a, a county in Tennessee where they've uh, made fire protection, uh, I guess, voluntary or um, well, it's they, a private. They essentially privatized it. Each yeah. person pays for their own pri fire protection. And uh, there was one man, uh, a guy who was getting old. Uh, he had paid the fee for years, and uh, in 2010, he forgot and his grandson burned some trash in his backyard and the fire spread to his house and they called the fire department and they said, you didn't pay your bill, we're not coming. And uh, his wife said, look, we'll pay whatever's necessary, but she was told that that wasn't an option. And uh, so the fire department eventually came and watched his house burn to the ground. They were there to make sure that it didn't spread to the neighbors who had paid their fee. And there was a furious debate uh, after this in the press about whether the fire department had acted appropriately. And there were uh, some libertarian inclined uh, people, I guess the most prominent of them was Glenn Beck, who argued that uh, the fire department had done the right thing. And uh, the episode was also seized on by people on the left who thought that what had happened here was the true face of capitalism, that this shows how callous and heartless capitalism is and why we need to move away from free markets to a world that looks after people and not profits. And I want to argue that both of them have misunderstood libertarianism in its strongest form, which gives us all of those benefits of freedom, but does not entail that the fire department is going to stand by and watch a house burn down. Do you, do you think your argument is mainly a uh, argument that um, with markets, if you were doing maybe like a cost benefit analysis, or if you were looking at what benefits people the most, um, you're going to want to maximize that, utilizing markets where they do maximize benefits, and then not using them when that is not necessarily the the case is, is that well maybe the i i actually don't think in terms of maximizing benefits uh i think that uh i'm not concerned about benefits so much as i am about people uh you can maximize gross national product but uh many of the people in the society can be oppressed and have uh pretty uh relations of domination and subordination between each other. I'm concerned about relations between people. What liberalism promises is that everybody is going to be free to shape their lives as they like, and nobody is going to be dominated by anybody else. And that is the promise of libertarianism, economic growth, which Hayek was trying to promote in his 1944 book. Uh, promises a society that is more like that than the society we have now, certainly than the society that we had in 1944. And that's, I think, uh, really the 
anchor of a philosophy of freedom, that we are able to live in respectful relations with one another with nobody able to push anybody else around. So, so when I said maximizing benefits, and I don't necessarily mean economic benefits, I just mean benefits as, as a whole. Um, and I think, I think we kind of agree. Con- consumer even value? Well, no, I just meant, um, but I think he's agreeing with what I meant. I, I'm not saying, oh, well, we need to go do calculations and figure out where, how we're going to maximize GDP. Because um, mm-hmm. there's other yeah. values other than economic constraints, obviously. And, and um, yeah. So you guys are uh, on the same page. I, I think I so. I think that we are. Uh, you know, I mean, you'll, I'm, uh, you know, as well as a law professor, I uh, work in political philosophy. And, uh, you know, what we try to do as philosophers is just define our terms precisely. And uh, so I think that maximizing benefits just isn't specific enough for what it is that we're trying to accomplish. It's like, you know, advice to do the right thing. Uh, I want to do the right thing. You want to do the right thing. But if I tell you to do the right thing, I haven't really given you much information about what to do. Uh, And uh, so I want to say what you want to do is uh, give people the resources to shape, shape their lives as they like. And the idea that that's what we're trying to accomplish in politics is a new development in human history. You look at uh, you know, older sources and you will find that uh, people will say, well, the purpose of political life, the purpose of government is to maximize the greater glory of King Sargon or to promote the true religion or to promote the triumph of the nation or of the master race. And the idea that we really are concerned about individuals and we want to leave individuals free to shape their own lives. I mean, that is a new and I think very attractive view. And it's the common ground between uh, a liberal like me and uh, the libertarians. The libertarians come advertised as uh, a philosophy that aims to leave each person free to uh, live as they like. What divides me from uh, the more doctrinaire libertarians today is that they think that the way to accomplish this is to minimize government. That's what we're actually fighting about. They think that the smaller and weaker government is, the more freedom there will be. And I think that that's just a mistake. We are arguing about strategy, how you deliver actual freedom to actual people. Okay. Um, on, on your fire uh, example, um, what, what do you think in that particular county if they have that voluntary situation and the fire department did show up and that guy hadn't paid, what do you think the, the best, uh, the next best alternative would have been in that situation? What, what should the, in, in your opinion, what should the fire well, department have done with that situation? I think that the whole scheme of privatizing fire delivery is a mistake that this is something that ought to be publicly provided to everybody, that when somebody calls and says that a house is on fire, nobody has to go and check a file to see whether they have paid or not. The uh, relevant category should not be people who came up with the money versus people who didn't. The relevant category should be houses on fire. And so the appropriate approach, the approach that is in fact followed in most places in the United States, is we fund a fire department out of tax money. And uh, if a house is on fire, the fire department comes and puts it out. Okay. What do you think the correct way? Would there be a system? I think I've heard uh, libertarian 
exercise where people kind of work through these types of conversations and they say maybe the fire department would have then put the or the the privatized fire uh, corporation would have put the fire out then sent them a bill after the fact you know that type of thing i think we can all agree i mean sitting there and watching the house burn to the ground is probably not good advertisement for that private corporation not good for society um you know it's not good for for the people that own the house <laughs> but uh you know there's I get, and you don't have much time to negotiate a deal either. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I guess that county made that decision. Um, mm -hmm. And at that point, there's probably something else that could have been done. And I think I read that the county decided to um, change the rules slightly to where if the fire department did put out the fire, that it was a $3,500 charge. Mm. Yeah, a big charge. That's another solution. It is still inferior to uh, what we've got now, which, I mean, in most parts of the United States, they will put out your house if it's on fire, even if you are too poor to pay the fee. And that's true of an awful lot of public services. If you are too poor to pay tuition for your child's school, the government will do it for free. And, you know, we don't even think about that. We take for granted that even the poorest child gets a free public education. Uh, if you want a society in which people are free to shape their lives as they like, then the having a class of illiterate children, which is what we used to do, uh, is not the way to maximize freedom. That there are an awful lot of important things that government does that actually do deliver freedom to people. Uh, you know, the uh, one that is, I think, particularly salient in the last couple of years is dealing with COVID. The COVID, facts, the COVID virus did not violate anyone's rights. If government is only there to protect us against rights violation, COVID didn't violate anybody's rights. And so there wasn't anything that government needed to do about it. What government in fact did was it took massive amounts of money that had been taken from citizens through compulsory taxation and gave it to pharmaceutical companies for extremely risky research, research that they would not have invested in on their own because it was so risky. And they came up with a vaccine. And at this point, the disease is at least somewhat under control and the rate of death has plummeted because of big government. I think that makes us freer. That, that would certainly be a divisive issue, I would say, amongst yeah. uh, at least modern libertarian or even people, many people in the country, right, Professor? Um, I don't know. You know, they saw the opposition to uh, vaccines that I have heard is largely based on ignorance. You know, that, uh, you know, Bill Gates putting chips in your brain when you take the vaccine. Well, that's just stupid. <laughs> I mean, come on. Now, you say vaccines, um, opposition to vaccines. You mean vaccines as a whole or the vaccine process specific to the COVID vaccines? Well, uh, you know, the uh, suspicion of the COVID vaccine, which uh, really I largely blame on Donald Trump, who minimized the disease when he knew full well how deadly it was, uh, has now spread to other vaccines. So uh, vaccine resistance, which was pretty marginal for a long time, uh, has become more of a presence in American political life. And uh, this is just a mistake. I mean, we've gotten rid of smallpox because we vaccinated everybody and people weren't allowed to say, well, I don't want to be vaccinated. 
uh, you know, I want my own liberty. We understood that if you want people to be able to live their lives as they like, uh, that is impeded if you die of smallpox. So would you be an advocate of vaccine mandates, even for children? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, in the book, you do kind of a recap of the history. Actually, before mm-hmm. we jump into that, what prompted you to write this book? When did you start? Because there's a new administration that took over the national, and I saw an article you wrote about that also. But it seems like you must have obviously started writing this book prior oh, I've, to the I've recent been writing takeover. This, I, I was working on this for years. I actually got started when uh, there was litigation over the constitutionality of Obamacare. Mm. And I'm a constitutional law professor, so I read the district court opinions that were striking down Obamacare, and I thought that the reasoning was terrible, and I started blogging about that, that uh, the idea that there's some limit on congressional power to keep citizens alive is just crazy. And as I looked at these cases progress toward the Supreme Court, it became clear to me that uh, the challengers and also the judges who were upholding the challenges uh, were reading libertarianism into the Constitution, were reading a minimal government philosophy, which is not actually in the Constitution, uh, as if it were part of constitutional law. And so I ended up writing a history of that case. The book is called The Tough Luck Constitution and the Assault on Healthcare Reform, uh, that tried to show where this challenge came from, and why it was a distortion of constitutional law. And in the course of writing that book, I found I read a lot of libertarians just to try to understand where these books were coming from. Uh, that book was not a history of libertarianism, but in the course of writing it, I discovered that there was no good critical history of libertarianism out there. And so I thought that it would be helpful to have a book like that. And this book ended up taking me longer than I expected it to. But uh, this is, uh, if you want, an antidote for the kind of extreme libertarianism that is uh, exemplified by the fire department letting the house burn down. That's what this book tries to do, to be a good critical introduction to libertarianism for the general reader. So would you agree libertarianism in a way or to a degree was kind of founded in the 1940s? Well, the modern American libertarian movement starts in 1944 with Friedrich Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom. And so what I try to do in the book is uh, it's a critical history of the varieties of libertarianism because libertarianism comes in flavors, some of them more bitter than others. And uh, so I think that Hayek, uh, what Hayek was doing was really admirable. There was a general sense in the late 1930s that central economic planning was the only way to go. The world's most admired economic managers were Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler, because they were the ones who had turned their economies around after the Depression, while Britain and France and the United States were all still uh, in... uh, pretty economically stagnant. And uh, so the British Labor Party uh, took the position during World War II that we need to continue wartime controls on wages and prices. We need central planning of the economy. And Hayek was protesting against that and saying, this is going to be wasteful and it's going to be tyrannical. And here's why you need free markets. And he was right about that. I don't think that there is, and his ideas 
really have dominated American politics ever since. Not that there ever was genuine socialist uh, politics in the United States. Franklin Roosevelt really wasn't, was only offering welfare state capitalism, not socialism. Um, and uh, so, uh, so that idea that what we want is uh, robust capitalism with an extremely robust welfare state, something like what we have now in Sweden, where there are more billionaires per capita than in the United States, uh, that really dominates American politics. Uh, Bernie Sanders believes it. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez believes it. Certainly Joe Biden and Barack Obama believe it. And you're, um, I, I think from your book, you're uh, that type of view, I, I believe you attribute mainly to uh, John Rawls. Um, well, Rawls is another story. I think that that is the uh, actual entailment of Rawls's philosophy. John Rawls is the most important liberal political philosopher of the 20th century. And uh, part of what he does in his philosophy is try to justify redistribution so that uh, any inequalities that remain are to the benefit of the least advantaged because they benefit from market economy. Uh, I am somewhat critical of Rawls because Rawls doesn't close the door on socialist central direction of the economy, which I think he should. But I do think that he's right that a fair social contract looks after the weakest and most vulnerable members of society. And that uh, libertarianism is, in, at least in its extreme forms, is unwilling to do that. Hayek didn't rule it out, but uh, there are more recent libertarians who do, like Rawls's Harvard colleague, Robert Nozick. Professor Koppelman, I would assume, based on what I've heard from you, you would be more sympathetic to Hayek than you would be to Rothbard. Uh, yes. So I also talk about in the book about uh, Murray Rothbard. The way that the book proceeds is uh, start by getting clear on who Hayek was and what he did and the way in which this uh, variety of libertarianism that just focuses on the value of free markets originated with Hayek and then was further developed by other writers within his framework, like Milton Friedman or Richard Epstein, who I think are more optimistic about unregulated markets than Hayek was. Hayek was more agnostic about that. And then the later chapter turns to the more extreme and doctrinaire forms of libertarianism, which were pushed by uh, Murray Rothbard and by Robert Nozick and Ayn Rand. And these more romantic varieties of libertarianism absolutely rule out any redistribution. They are extremely suspicious of regulation and their philosophical arguments are weak. And so what I try to do in those, that chapter is just get clear on what their arguments are and why those arguments are no good. Yeah, I think uh, in, in your intro, I, I, I copied a piece of this, but I think you compare and contrast Robert uh, Rothbard and, and Rand um, and I believe you said that they were romantic and individualist, no cold Hayekian ca calculations for them, um, their visions of individual breaking free of society, uh, stultifying constraints, broadened libertarians' concerns from economics to ideas of personal liberation. Um, and then you just uh, go on, policy calculations were secondary. Um, their libertarianism was based on rights, um, whereas... In 
and Hayek, I guess, was more about markets and, and the economics. Um, yeah, Hayek was about consequences, that uh, there will be better consequences for everybody uh, if we allow markets to do their work. Hayek didn't really know how to think about rights, and rights aren't really a part of his argument. Uh, now, there are a lot of libertarians following Rothbard who think that uh, there just is an absolute right to property that's violated by taxation. And so ta either taxation ought not to happen at all, or it ought to be reduced to an absolute minimum. That argument sometimes rests on the social contract theory that grows out of the uh, 16th century philosopher, uh, 17th, sorry, 17th century philosopher John Locke. And so I try to explain what Locke's social contract theory is and why it does not, in fact, lead to libertarianism, why it, in fact, leads to something like Rawls, where uh, the basic idea of the social contract is that everybody in society has good reason to respect the rules of property as they are. And Rawls says, you've got to be able to say to the poorest person in society, this overall system benefits you and your family, and your family, you and your family would not be better off if we had any different system. And so you ought to agree to whatever inequalities there are. And you've got to be able to say that to everybody if everybody has got a reason to regard themselves as a full participant in the system. You, you earlier uh, mentioned maximizing freedom. Um... And it sounds like, you know, somebody like Rothbard um, starts from a starting point of, um, I mean, I think he has multiple principles that that he um, tries to build us, use as, as a scaffolding for a political philosophy. But um, would it, is rights not a good starting point? No, I think that rights is a terrific starting point, but then we've got to figure out what the rights are. Negative or uh, positive, for, maybe? Well, I mean, since I'm primarily concerned, and I think we ought to be concerned with what rights we have against one another, it's really about relations that we have between one another and how we ought to regard one another's rights to property. I mean, there are some people who think that property is a relation between a person and a thing, but that's just not true. Uh, property rights are rights between people. If I own something, that means that you and everybody else in the universe needs to keep their hands off of it. It is about an obligation that everybody else has toward me to respect what is in my possession. So, that and so then be... we've got to ask what kinds of property rights make sense if what we owe to one another is mutual respect. Um, so, so you... You do think that, I guess, rights would be a good starting point. It's just defining what those rights are is really the where the questions yeah. are, um, you know. Yeah, well, it, it, I don't, we don't know anything about what to do if we say that rights are our starting point, but we don't know what they are. Well, I know. The That's fundamental question is what rights. Them. Yeah, we got to know what our rights are. What are, I mean, you know, the fact that you are asserting property rights doesn't even if I am asserting property rights that are protected by law where I live, that doesn't tell us anything about whether I'm entitled to do it. The South in the Civil War was mm. our fighting on behalf of property rights, but it turns out that they were the moochers and the looters and the people who were taking what belongs to other people. You've got to think first about 
what rights we are entitled to assert against each other. Definitely. And uh, so, so what, uh, and I'm sorry, Kelly. No, you're I'm good. You keep going. You, the more you talk, the better. The, uh, the, the question I would have is how would you define uh, property rights? Cause I, I, the, you had some very good criticisms in your book. I was still, um, as I was reading it, trying to figure out, okay, well, in contrast, how do you feel about property rights compared to what your criticisms were of uh, some of these other libertarians? Property rights are something that should be understood as something that we all construct together. Property rights are defined by the law. Uh, you know, I'm a law professor. I think in terms of what the laws actually are. Uh, and we together define property rights. We construct them as part of the rules of our society in order to maximize everybody's freedom, to give everybody the ability to uh, construct the life that they want, and to maintain respectful relations between us. And so the property rights can include uh, quite a lot of taxation, if that taxation is what you need in order to have respectful relations with one another. One element and one way of displaying the community's respect and concern for all of its members is, for example, that if your house catches fire, we're not going to ask any questions. We're going to come and put out the fire because you are one of us. And we are not going to stand by and let your house burn down. And quite a lot of what government does is very much like that. We are going to create the background conditions for uh, each of us to live as we want. And so that means uh, investment in infrastructure <laughs> so that uh, we can, because it's a great thing to have a free market economy. It's very hard to do that if you don't have roads and electricity <laughs> and internet and you know public goods like that. Uh, and also, you need government to keep us from harming one another by, for example, polluting the air and the water. Uh, or uh, I talk about this at the end of the book, warming up the planet. If I am making money by emitting uh, gases that are going to lead to the destruction of other people's property, government ought not to allow me to do that. And you need a government that has the power to stop me. Professor Koppelman, um, my interview style is very ADD, so I apologize for jumping all over the place. Um, That's fine. Based on what I've heard from you so far and, and read from you, it doesn't sound too far off from saying that like what the Biden administration is doing is actually consistent with kind of your train of thought. Would that be accurate? Uh, yes. I, I like most of what Biden has done. Uh, that. Uh, if you want people to actually be free and actually control their lives, then uh, you know, you've got to make sure that people have the uh, basic wherewithal to look after themselves. You need to protect them from pollution. You've got to protect them from disease at the workplace uh, because uh, employers know more about workplace dangers than workers do. You've got to protect them from pollution. You've got to protect from climate change. Climate change is an issue where uh, I think that libertarians really have betrayed their principles because libertarians ought to be all in favor of government action to stop climate change because it's some people making money by destroying other people's property. 
and injuring other people's persons. As storms get worse, uh, you know, my uh, gleeful uh, emission of gases into the atmosphere is going to contribute to a storm that's going to kill somebody. <laughs> that's not something that I should have a right to do. Okay. Um, and I, as I read an article that you wrote recently, I think more so in the article than in the book, you addressed the actual recent takeover. It's the Mises Caucus takeover mm-hmm. of the Libertarian yeah. Party. Of course, you right at the beginning of the article, you mentioned that in 2016, the Libertarian mm-hmm. Party, the official Libertarian Party, had a high point with the Gary Johnson mm-hmm. campaign. They got the most, the highest percentage votes of all time. The presidential election that the Libertarian Party had ever gotten. And now the party is being torn apart by uh, division over a subgroup within the Libertarian Party that uh, is alt-right, somewhat racist. Uh, the uh, is uh, And uh, this... Uh, the fact that, uh, I mean, this has been a long-standing problem within the Libertarian Party that it attracts racists. And what I say in the column is that this is a puzzle, because if you look at all of the major libertarian thinkers, you are not going to find a single racist among them. You know, not Hayek, not racists. Uh, what about Hoppe? Uh, so there is uh, one, uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, who... Uh, an associate of Murray Rothbard, uh, who does go there. Uh, I don't really discuss him at all in the book because within libertarian thought, uh, he has been a a minor figure. He certainly hasn't had anything like the impact on American politics that Rothbard did. And what I wanted to do in the book was respond to libertarianism in its strongest form the uh, most intellectually cogent forms. And Hoppe has this weird idea that an entire race or an entire nation can have a property right to a piece of land collectively that they can use to uh, keep out either foreigners generally or dark-skinned foreigners. And uh, it's pretty terrible philosophy uh, for reasons that I didn't think that I needed to get into. and also, uh, I wanted to show that uh, libertarianism, again, in its strongest form, doesn't rely on this uh, kind of racial appeal at all, and that, uh, and that libertarians have repudiated it. But then uh, there is a puzzle about why are racists drawn to this? Uh, you know, there are other marginal philosophies that are... Uh, inconsistent with uh, racism that uh, don't draw these people. You don't see much in the way of racists in the Green Party. Why are they in the Libertarian Party? And I think that part of the emotional appeal of libertarianism has been the idea of being able to take care of yourself alone, separating yourself from obligations to other people. If you resent having obligations to certain other people, I think that that's part of the uh, emotional attraction. Uh, The idea of being self-sufficient has its emotional attraction. And while I quote Ayn Rand to make clear that Rand herself repudiated racism, when you talk about worrying about 
parasites, moochers, and looters who take other people's stuff, uh, that language goes down easier for audiences who are pretty sure they know who those people are. African-Americans is what we think that is? Yeah. Uh, and, are you uh, saying, uh, but you're not saying Ayn Rand had that thought. She, no, she did not. She, I think she was but just her, making a general. No, she. No, Rand is absolutely clear in repudiating racism. She denounced racism in completely unambiguous terms. It's just false that Ayn Rand was a racist. She was not a racist. So, so if anything, but, some of this may be more like a dog whistle to get the attention. Is what you're thinking by using the terms um, looters or. Well, I think the language of moochers and looters is easily appropriated by racists. It resonates with them. And if nothing else, that is not what Rand intended. Yeah. And it, but in modern days, if somebody was using that language, it could be construed yep. as, um, we know it who is those often people so are construed. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, Professor Koppelman, you said at its best form, libertarianism, the great thinkers, within mm -hmm. the history of libertarianism, we're not racist. Would you say that applies to, like, Ron Paul? You would not consider him to be a racist? Um, you know, I uh, did, since Ron Paul is a politician and not a philosopher, I did not dig very deep into Ron Paul. Okay. Uh, I'm interested in these people who put themselves out as uh, political philosophers and uh, who have a well-developed political philosophy. Uh and so that can include some political actors. So Charles Koch, for example, has written three books and uh, he can point to the thinkers who he says influenced him. So you can try to draw the connections between, for example, Ludwig von Mises and Charles Koch, because Koch tells you that he read Mises's book, Human Action, and it was a life-changing experience for him and shaped his whole worldview. And so, you know, there's lots of readers out there who have not read <laughs> Human Action, which is a big, dense book. I've so uh, one of the things that I try to do in the book is say, well, all right, so here are the intellectual sources of Coke. And because Coke can point to them. Uh, we know that Ron Paul and Rand Paul were quite friendly with Rothbard. But uh, I don't try to draw those connections between them because... Uh, they are not, in fact, directly invoking his ideas. And, and so I think it, it's pretty clear, though, that at least from the book, and it sounds like from this conversation, Hayek's probably your favorite of those libertarian thinkers. Uh, uh, yeah, like. Hayek and uh, his successors, uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the most valuable things that libertarians have done is at the retail level, pointing to certain government actions and saying, this is stupid, this is wasteful, this is unnecessary, it would be better to privatize this. And so, uh, you know, Hayek did that. I also uh, have extended treatments of Milton Friedman and Richard Epstein, both of whom are right about a lot of things. But uh, you know, the problem is that uh, you know, government can sometimes be stupid and wasteful, and the free market can sometimes be massively inefficient because of uh, externalities and uh, market power. And uh, you know, economics is full of stories of market failure. If you are a college student and you major in economics, you will learn in the first semester about what a frictionless perfect market looks like and then you spend the rest of your college career learning about various kinds of failure and how government deals with them that's the sensible way to think about free markets 
Um, are you um, familiar with Hayek's, um, I guess, I mean, he won the Nobel Prize, I guess, with sort of his criticism of central banking or the distortions that can come out of... Uh, uh, he did uh, criticize central banking. And uh, uh, here, I think, you know, he thought that uh, you know, just uh, having uh, no central control over the money supply would be best overall. I think that that idea is in some tension with his more lasting contribution, which is understanding that a market economy is so complex that nobody can understand everything that is going on in it. And so uh, that's why you can't have central management. It also suggests that we ought to be careful about radically rejiggering the economy that we have. One thing that experience showed us in the 20th century was that once we got uh, the Federal Reserve, a you know, powerful central bank, that the cycles of boom and bust became a lot gentler, that the intervention of the central bank was able to make the economy more livable. So uh, that suggests me, and Hayek's idea that the economy is uh, unknowably complex suggests to me that maybe we can't fully understand why the Fed has made this contribution, although uh, you, know, you can look at the record of success. The United States became, uh, during the period of central banking, the most powerful and the most prosperous country in the history of the planet. But I think every I'm other country with that. was also moving to central banking. I, I think mm -hmm. some yeah. some libertarians make the argument that the move to central banking is necessary or um, was necessary for wars. Um, I think mm -hmm. Milton Friedman makes that argument that you need to be mm -hmm. able to inflate your monetary supply when mm -hmm. you're um, in a in a century of um, mass conflicts. But uh, there's other libertarians said that. That's the, how you extracted enough resources from an economy to fight mass wars on a world scale like World War One or World War Two. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with those arguments or not. Yeah, but the cycles of boom and bust were also ameliorated during the fairly long periods of peace. And even when the United States was at war, uh, yes, the, uh, you know, even, you know, I mean, some of the, and some of our wars, uh, you know, I will concede were ridiculous mistakes, uh, Vietnam and Iraq, but Vietnam and Iraq did not consume anything like the amount of gross national product that World War II did. So uh, when we talk about a country being at war, um, from the standpoint of uh, percentage of gross national product, we've spent most of the 20th century at peace. One argument from a modern-day libertarian would be, you know, the Reagan administration, which I kind of associate with Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman was real popular around that time, the idea of, mm -hmm. like, trickle-down economics, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Reagan's rhetoric was uh, music to the ears of many libertarian-type people, okay? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, he actually ended up growing the size of government, okay? Yeah. Uh, but the trickle-down economics, of course, is received a lot of criticism over time. It ends up being basically corporate welfare. Mm -hmm. And so would you say the Koch brothers fall into, yes, they were advertised as libertarian type 
thinkers, and that's what they were principled to do. But at the end of the day, it turns into, are you giving welfare to the poorest people in the country, or are you giving welfare to the big corporations? So it's just two different sides of it. Does, it, does that make any sense at all? Well, uh, I, one of the odd things that I learned about uh, the Cokes is that the reason why they're so wealthy is because of a complex scheme of uh, government regulation, which I describe in the book. They essentially had a, mono a very near monopoly on petroleum production in uh, the middle United States uh, for decades. And if you've got that kind of monopoly, that's going to make you rich. So while they've talked about small government, uh, they have been beneficiaries of government-created monopolies uh, for a long time, and they've just reinvested the money. And that's why Charles Koch is one of the richest people in the world. On the question of uh, you know, just size of government and Reagan, um, one of the things that I like about Reagan is that uh, his people actually were interested in evidence. So, for example, when they first came in uh, to the Environmental Protection Agency, they were extremely suspicious of regulation of pollution. One thing that they were particularly suspicious of was limits on lead in gasoline because uh, they, it was clear that this was costing oil companies a lot and they weren't sure that it was worth it. And then they came into government and they looked at the government scientists' studies and they saw that lead in gasoline was producing massive harm, particularly to young children, and they ended up enacting a stricter limit on lead in gasoline than the Carter administration had proposed because they were responsive to evidence. Uh, you contrast this with the Trump administration, which responded to studies by scientists about uh, particulates, the kind of soot where the particles are so small that they can cross the blood-brain barrier and damage the brain. Uh, and uh, the Obama administration had been very much like the Carter administration, had done studies and proposed stricter restrictions on these particulates than uh, had previously been the case. And Trump responded by getting rid of all the scientists. It's a very different kind of response, and uh, I think that this and and did it on uh, in the name of easing the burden of regulation. And when I say libertarian philosophy was corrupted by delusion and greed, this is a good instance of that. That uh, the small government rhetoric uh, was really based on idealists like Rothbard, who thought you know anything that reduces the size of government is good, and that formed an alliance with the people who were actually backing Trump, who were industrialists who wanted to hurt people without being bothered by the police. That's I don't know, the greed part. Yeah, I don't know if most libertarians um, would necessarily claim Trump as somebody that they were uh, supporting. <laughs> but, uh, but Trump uh, used libertarian rhetoric, and uh, he did libertarian, at least some, libertarian things. He shrunk the size of uh, government regulation. He stopped new regulations. He uh, made it difficult for government bureaucrats to impose new regulations. His big accomplishment was a massive tax cut. And uh, he very nearly uh, 
cut back massively on Obamacare, the bill that uh, he tried very hard to get through Congress would have taken health insurance away from t- over 20 million people in order to provide even more tax cuts. So in terms of actual practice, at least in those respects, he was a small government guy. In other respects, he was an authoritarian in ways that uh, libertarians are appropriately repelled by. Shoving peaceful protesters into unmarked vans is not a libertarian thing to do. Professor Koppelman, are you concerned about the national debt? Is that a concern of yours? I heard you mention uh, Green Party earlier, but then at certain it points, is, the it, global warming, Green New Deal type stuff, I assume that would add to the debt substantially. It, is the it debt is a, an issue? It is, a, it is an issue. Uh, taxes in the United States are too low, particularly at the top. Uh, one of the things that has happened since Reagan is that the American economy has grown massively. We are enormously richer than we were when Reagan came into office. Uh, the country has all of these needs. The people who have gotten fabulously rich in the last few decades ought to pay for it. And then you would not have debt as large as we have now. It's because it has become so hard to raise taxes as a consequence of the triumph of libertarian rhetoric that we have the kind of debt that we now have. Is is the lower is the growth a consequence of lower taxes? I think maybe Art Laffer or somebody like that wouldn't be making sort of that type of argument. Well, that Art Laffer made that argument on the back of a napkin. Uh, I mean, in theory, Laffer is right that uh, you know, at some level of taxation, taxation will harm growth. But Laffer never showed us where that point was. And the economics is pretty clear at this point. I mean, economists actually have studied this and uh, done quite a lot of work on it. And you could have uh, much higher rates of taxes, particularly at the top, than you do now uh, without depressing growth. If, uh, you know, if Jeff Bezos had to pay a lot more taxes than he does now, it's hard to see how that would change his behavior. Uh, he would still be uh, one of the richest people in the world, and he clearly likes being one of the richest people in the world. If he had less wealth than he now has, he would probably still be doing pretty much what he's doing. You mentioned the Scandinavian countries that have, Ooh. of course, a robust somewhat free market, not somewhat, uh, arguably less regulated economy than we do in a lot mm-hmm. of ways yeah. on the private sector, but then also combining it with the robust welfare state. And big government, yes. Mm-hmm. Is it, am I inaccurate by saying they tax the middle class there more than we do? Yes. I'm inaccurate. No, that's a, that is true. Okay, so, tax- so, so when advertised like the squad, some of the things you're saying sounds like something mm-hmm. AOC would say or Cori Bush or mm-hmm. you know someone like that. They would say, they, we're not trying to tax the middle guy, the, 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 the everyday person. But in reality, in the United States right now, the, the middle class is paying a lower tax rate than the people in those Scandinavian countries that you, got, you, you seem to, to look up to. Okay, so what would That's your rebuttal true. be Although to that? Although the uh, concentration of wealth at the very top uh, is uh, so dramatic in the United States that uh, I don't think that we would necessarily have to have a tax scheme 
exactly like the Scandinavian countries. But I say, you know, these guys are politicians. Uh, If uh, they say, well, we don't want a tax rate like the Scandinavian countries, we want to raise taxes at the very top, and that's what we propose. Well, that's what they propose. And then we can get into the details of policy about whether the tax reforms that they are proposing would in fact have the results that they want. And again, I think your general premise is uh, kind of a, a, a premise of uh, maximizing freedom. So um, mm-hmm. the, the, at least that's my my thumbnail sketch of it. So, you know, one other criticism that I think is brought up by a lot of libertarians when we talk about making policies and as a group is uh, maybe public choice issues mm-hmm. that um, are, are brought up. Um, when we talk about okay well this is what we want to do but when it comes to actual practice there Mm -hmm. is a tendency for small groups with very strong vested interest to lobby Mm -hmm. for and be very interested in a specific set of um uh, i guess policies that will not necessarily maximize freedom Yep, there are various ways in which government policies sometimes fail. Uh, And it's to protect against that, that, for example, uh, every uh, administration since Reagan has said that before we enact regulations, you got to show us that the benefits exceed the costs. And uh, at least until uh, Trump, because Trump didn't care about benefits. He just wanted to show that uh, there weren't going to be costs for industry. But it's also the case that quite a lot of government regulations, in fact, do survive cost-benefit analysis. I talked about lead and gasoline. The particulate uh, restrictions that the Obama the Obama administration put forth, you know, pretty heavy costs on industry, but uh, the benefits seem to be uh, some multiple of the costs, just in terms of, uh, and some of those benefits are hard to quantify, like the number of Americans who are going to get to live to see their grandchildren. Uh, that's something that people tend to value. Um, that makes sense. Kelly, do you have anything else? Hmm. Very fascinating. Um, If someone's listening, they're intrigued by your book, whether they are a critic of the libertarian Mm -hmm. uh, frame of thought or libertarian party even, or maybe they, you know, more so like myself, they're a fan of libertarian thought or even the voting for libertarian candidates. Um, I think it's a neat opportunity to learn a side which is not near as often represented. Would you agree, Professor? Yeah, uh, I am eager to hear criticisms of my book. If people uh, read the book and they have issues with it, uh, my email address is easy to find on the internet. Uh, I am eager to hear from people. Very interesting to to, to write. But a, read the book first. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. Has anyone? Uh, delved into i know people do criticize libertarians often that's not uncommon right uh, jason i'm pretty sure i've seen that some yeah that's <laughs> happened before but to actually go through the process of learning the ins and outs of the original thinkers the current thinkers um the ex- more extremes like rothbard i guess you could say and then hayek and all the the most important figures within the, the libertarian world and then to articulate a, a, a rebuttal to that, I do think it's somewhat unique. Like I don't, I don't know of anyone else really doing that. Like you said earlier, Professor. 
Well, that's why I wrote this book. I thought that there needed to be a book like this, and there was not. Do you, do you plan on going on uh, other maybe libertarian-leaning podcasts mm. by chance? Uh, anybody else wants to invite me? Uh, I mean, you know, they're going to have to compete with what we just did now, <laughs> but uh, I'm happy to talk to them too. Would you be open to maybe a debate? Sure. Hmm. So maybe if I get someone, that'd be an interesting topic, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, a debate. I could, I could try to moderate a debate, and, and it sounds like you are certainly familiar. You know, I, I think you. I, I don't know if you've listened much to, um, or if you're familiar with um, Russ Roberts' podcast. I, I'm not. Okay, he he does a podcast called like Econ Talk, but um, he's I'm happy uh, to talk to him. He's a Hayekian. That's why I asked. And well, maybe I'm not be. familiar with Russ. I'm not. He um, he, he's lives in, he lives in Israel now, but um, he was with Stanford's Hoover Institute, and before that, I think he was if at George Mason. If you know him, have him write to me. I'll send him the book. Okay. Great stuff. Well, Professor Koppelman, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And Jason, you too. Uh, yeah, thank you. I want to thank everyone for tuning into The Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we will have another episode out soon.